0: Chapter 2, verses 1-11. through This is the Word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You for an opportunity to gather this morning We come with many different experiences this week, some great celebrations, some sorrow, incredible fear. And I thank You for Your Word that it invades our life, it brings hope, and speaks directly to us through Your Word and the power of Your Holy Spirit. I pray as a loving God that You would open our eyes and ears that we may hear the truth, the good news of the Gospel. May I decrease that You may increase for Your glory. Amen. Please be seated. So it's not an easy passage to tack. There's a lot here. We're going to be focusing on specifically looking not to your own interest, but the interests of others. And there's three questions that I'm going to ask. This is my outline that we're going to look at this morning. First off, who is God? And then why should we actually, in light of who God is, why should we look to the interest? of of others, and then specifically, how do we actually do this? Paul's laying out this this idea in the middle of incredible opposition. There's fragmentation even going on inside the church, and he's calling us to consider others more important than ourselves. How does this actually happen? So that's the roadmap where we're going to go. We're going to first off begin with who is God? That's an easy, you know, one point to start with. Who is God? You know, for a lot of us, we, we, you're, you're here this morning. You may believe in the orthodox God, but for a lot of my friends, and I, and, and, and I don't ever want to assume that everybody is on the same place. For a lot of folks that I talk to, they believe that there is, there is a God. Very few people that I ever meet, even in San Diego, didn't believe that there was a God. But the fact that you could know God would just seem unrealistic, that he's too big and too vast. But what we actually do, we, we say that we know God through the person of Jesus Christ as attested to us in Scripture. And for many of us here this morning, that's right where the hang-up is. It's like, well, Jim, I, I'm really it, it all hinges on your authority of what you're giving to Scripture. What happens if you don't hold to the authority of Scripture? And I don't want to assume that. And that's where a lot of people struggle right now with knowing who God is. When I was 18 years old, I went to Lenore rhyne College in Hickory, North Carolina. I'd been a believer for less than a year. And I was so excited to go to this Lutheran college because I was going to learn a little bit more about God. And I signed up my freshman year for two religion classes. Now, at this point, I really didn't know much between the New Testament and Old Testament. Everything was new. And I, I walked into my first class so excited to meet our professor. And within 50 minutes of that first class... My world was crashing in on me. My professor came in and systematically went through and 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 deconstructed scripture. Some of you may have had this experience if you've had a liberal arts education, where the professor went in and talked about the miracles of Jesus that they never really happened. The, the thing that Jesus was really God uh, is not you know that's not consistent with modern enlightened thinking, and and for him to think that he rose from the dead surely did not happen. And so, after you've completely neutered all of the 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 truths that we hold to, what are we left with? And I can remember walking out of there just being so discouraged. And I had two classmates that literally threw their Bibles in the trash can as I left. But see, my life had been transformed. The things that I had heard preached about the gospel, the things that I was reading, and the Jesus I was encountering in Scripture, I knew to be real. And powerful. And how did I reconcile? This guy was obviously so much smarter than I was. How was I going to reconcile this? And so this sent me on a journey of interacting with with other folks, other pastors, other scholars to think, yes, can I intellectually worship the true living God as we know through the person of Jesus Christ and the claims of Scripture? And I actually found to discover over four or five, six years that it takes... Less faith to believe in the God of Scripture than some of the other assumptions going forward. So part of as as I'm going to go in and describe to you who this God is, I'm going to assume Scripture to be authoritative. And I know that that may be a leap for some of you. But I, I want you, to, in spite of that, to hang with me and maybe look a little bit at what Scripture says. First off, we come to John chapter 1. Who is God? John 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word. And as you look at the translation, the way we translate that passage is just with this, this cu- capital W-O-R-D. And you're like, why is it capitalized? And it's the Word is Logos, and it means Word. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh later on and dwelt among man. And what he's referring to is that Jesus being the living Word, now incarnate before you, is is God? He is the one that before the beginning of time was the one. Is the author? He is the one that spoke. And now the way that you know God is that He is put on flesh. And as we come to this passage here in chapter two, in verse six, we see that Jesus, that that we're, Paul is declaring Jesus to be the same as God. This is He is the same form as God. Meaning, he is the same substance, and I'm going to get really theological to you right here. Whatever the stuff that it makes God, God, Jesus has it. You like that? You know, and and hard, you know, even as as theologians, we struggle with really describing what that looks like, and and there were great debates going on in the early century of of what that looked like. You know, many, many of the, the cults that we deal with today, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses really err at this point of really trying to figure out what is Jesus' relationship to God and how is God related to it. And it, you know, really what we see through Jehovah Witnesses is just a repackages of, of Arianism, which was this movement and belief that believing that Jesus wasn't fully human. And, uh, the early church dealt with this debate and it has huge implications as it relates to the way that we relate to God, can know God and experience His grace. And the church answered that through coming together through a council in 325, the Council of Nicaea. And we have a creed that I'm sure from time to time that you confess, the Nicaean creed. And listen to the language as they deal with this issue of trying to describe how Jesus is related, not just related. What is the substance? What is the essence of God? Listen to the way that they describe this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And this is, this is what I I want you to listen to this. God of God, light of light, True God of true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. God is noble. He's not so unknowable. We know the heart and the essence, the substance of who God is by looking at the person of Jesus Christ. What are the implications for this, specifically out of this text and um, and for our lives? First off is that He is committed to us. God is a God that pursues us. He has pursued us to the point that He has put on flesh and come to enter into our life. And this is not something that's new. Early on, God decided that he wanted to have a unique relationship with his creation. And many of you know the story well. It goes back to Genesis chapter 15. God came to this Chaldean, this, this pagan man, Abram. And he says, I want to have a unique relationship. And through you, I'm going to build a great nation. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And they get together and they set up. And there's this covenant where there's they they introduce themselves. And there's promises made back and forth. And then after the promise, like any good covenant, there has to be a sacrifice. And seeing in San Diego, this was one of my favorite passages that my friends had, and, and you'll see this, because uh, Abram uh, gets several animals and puts them on the altar and cuts them up into pieces, and there arrives a smoking pot. And for a lot of my friends love smoking pot in San Diego, they go, there it is! But it's this theophany, it's the presence of the living God coming in, and what, it, and what it means within the light of the context of this covenant is that this, this smoking pot, the presence of the living God, moves through these pieces of these animals, signifying to Abraham in a clear way that's saying, if I am in, not faithful in any part of my covenant, if I break any part of my covenant, I promise to become like these pieces. And then the, the response that Abraham should have done at that point is then he should have moved through the altar and said, Lord if I'm unfaithful at any point, I promise to become like these pieces. That's, that is what this covenant requires. That if I break it, it's going to require death. But it doesn't happen. And most English translations miss this, but in the original Hebrew you see, it's a reflexive movement of that. Pot. The pot actually moves back to the pieces telling to Abraham, if you are unfaithful, if you don't live up to these covenant promises, I will become like These pieces. And we see that most clearly fulfilled. That is already pointing through to the person of Jesus Christ. Because he did become like pieces to us. He is committed to us. He's passionate about us. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news. The second implication of, of looking at who God is in light of the way Paul describes Him is is that, um, that He knows you and knows what you're going through. He knows the challenges and He cares. To think that the very God that spoke the cosmos and all the way from the biggest stars to the small, small cell and the fact that He's Personally connected to me, seems overwhelming, and a lot of times when you're in the middle of crisis or crisis individually or crisis within the church, you think, "God, where are you? You seem to have abandoned me." And and I know that would be true of some of Jesus' closest friends. In John chapter 11, we're told of the story of Mary and Martha, and uh, they sent word to Jesus that their son Lazarus, Lazarus was dead, was getting ready to die to come quickly. But Jesus doesn't come. He lingers for several days. And we, we see there in chapter 11, Jesus comes to Bethany and Mary hears about Jesus coming and she runs out of town. And she falls literally at His feet. She's overwhelmed and she's like, I really thought you cared. I've seen you heal and perform miracles literally to hundreds of people. You had a chance to save my brother's life and yet you didn't come. Have you ever been in a place like that? Where you know that God is sovereign. You know that He has the power and you've seen His faithfulness in your life, in your friend's life, and at your most desperate hour, you've cried out, And He didn't come. Or at least like He didn't come. It didn't seem. And Martha comes out and she asks the same questions. And what I want you to hear, if if you're a person that's in that place, and I I would imagine there are some of you this morning who've come desperately looking for hope. God is sovereign. You believe it. But does He really care specifically about you? knowing all the truths of your life, your hard-heartedness, your, your selfishness, could He possibly still love you? Jesus weeps with Mary and Martha. He has seen the devastation of what sin has done to creation, the relationships that it's broken, death that it's brought, the disease. And that really becomes the turning point of the whole Gospel of John. He describes Jesus at that point as a bull that flares His nostrils. He weeps. He's so angry of what sin has done and the brokenness that it's caused. And it's that point that He turns to Jerusalem and He marches into Jerusalem to die. I want you to know clearly who this God is. That He is a God who cares. And God reveals His heart, His passion for you most clearly through the person of Jesus. He was fully God and He was fully human. My second point, why should we look to the interest of others? Why should we humble ourselves? You know, in light of the promise that we saw in in Genesis 15 and then we saw fulfilled through the Gospels, We know that we've been given. And I say that we know, I hope that we know this great gift of salvation that we've been given. And that as we believe and put our trust in this person, Jesus, He doesn't just saves us, but He continues to make us holy. We're more created into His image. And because we were declared righteous at that very moment when we put our trust, we begin to have to live that out. And He breathes that into us. But there's also something else that He has given us far beyond our justification, our salvation, and our sanctification, and even beyond our adoption, which we'll talk a little bit more. But in, in, in verse 5, He tells us something that, that I think a lot of us miss out. It's a power source to live out that we, we miss. It says, have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? If you have put your trust in Jesus, He promises that He has already given you the mind of Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit that lives within you, he has given you Jesus' mind, the living God's mind. And and what is this mind? God is, Jesus, as we know, came. And the fullness of truth and, and grace. And this grace is demonstrated in love. And a lot of times we talk a lot about, about love, the things that we, we love. We love the beach. We love pizza. We love our friends. But the way that God measures real love, and I think that you measure love and your relationships to that are most important is by what you're willing to sacrifice and serve. Y'all have seen those mothers walking around Walmart before, haven't you? Those mothers that have the newborn that looks about six, seven weeks old, and she's walking around in this daze. She hasn't slept for, for months. And you just look at them and they're they're just they're just walking around and there's nothing in their buggy, but they're just there trying to figure out what's going on. And, and why is it that parents suffer? Why do they go through sub such sleep deprivation for those first few months. I, as a youth pastor, I used to hate lock-ins. I loved them, but you know, you just had that feeling in the pit. But that's what being a parent comes as. When you have a newborn, it's like you're signing up for a lock-in that lasts for six months. And yet, you continually get up in the middle of the night, and at 2 o'clock, and at 4 o'clock, and at 7 o'clock again, and you do this because you love. It's torture. Why would anybody go through that torture that you do it for love? And this is where we see God's full extent of how much He really loves us. And, and, and for a lot of us, the question is how do we choose to measure God's love? A lot of us can look around and go, man, I am so blessed and love God. You know, I've got a good career. I, I've got uh, a family. Um, things are just going well. I'm really blessed and loved. Are you any more blessed and loved than the prisoner that has put his faith? No. And that's that's the, that's the error that most of us make. When life goes well, we we err that we think, and and it tends to sometimes make us puffed up, but then on the other side, when we err, when we use our circumstances, we become despairing and are crushed. And, you know, and in my life, that has been the hardest thing for me is to measure God's love and affection for me personally, not by my circumstances. Because that's the ruler so many of us, that, that I, I use. But God gives us another ruler to measure it by. In Mark chapter 2, we're introduced to some friends that are willing to carry uh, one of their other friends who's paralyzed miles and miles to bring them to Jesus for the hope that they, that Jesus could heal their friend. And, and when they finally arrived to where Jesus was, there were so many people around this house that they couldn't get in. And they thought to themselves, what are we going to do? And the first thought is, we'll vandalize this house. And that's what they do. They climb up on the roof, they rip a hole in, and they lower Jesus, or they lower their friend before Jesus on this mat. And so they've carried this man, they've sacrificed, they've served their friend dramatically. They lay him at the foot of Jesus. And when Jesus looks at their faith, he says something that is shocking. He goes, he looks at their faith. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And I I can only imagine what this young man thought as he's, he's dared to hope that life could be any different because he can't clean himself. He can't feed himself. He can't provide for himself. He is utterly independent. His circumstances could not be more despairing. And now when the living God through the person of Jesus Christ comes and spe- looks at Him, He sees His greatest need not being His circumstances, but that His broken relationship with God. That See, Jesus knows that our greatest need is for us to be in a loving relationship where we get to delight over God, and God gets to delight over us. That's what we were created for. Everything else is a false lever. And yet, so when Jesus looked at what His deepest need was, He spoke to it. And by speaking into that, He knew for there to be a relationship, for His sins to be forgiven, forgiven, that there had to be a payment. That it wasn't just that His sins could be forgiven. But Jesus knew that He was going to have to pay the penalty for this man's sin. For his unfaithfulness. Where He, just like all of us, would have said, God, I know You have a plan for my life, but I'm willing to do it my own way. He wanted to be Lord of His own life. We've all done that. And Jesus said, I, for me to declare this, I am willing to substitute myself. And so that the people really knew that He had the authority to do it, He also said, so that you know, because a lot of people were murmuring, He said, take your mat, get up, walk. Jesus measures His love for us by what He's willing to sacrifice and serve for. And this morning, you may not be on a mat. You may have been able to clothe yourself this morning and feed yourself. Your greatest need is to have someone to pay for your sin. You need a Savior. And the only way for us to experience the love of God is for Jesus to suffer. And think about what God chose to do. He came. In the form of man being subject to birth. And when he was born, he did not go into a palace, but he went into a stall. He subjected himself to the law, the very law that he set up. He put himself under that authority. He underwent every misery of this life. He knows what it's like to be tempted, he knows what it's like to be hungry, to be betrayed. And at the end, the full extent of what Jesus was willing to suffer to show His demonstration of how much He loves you. The the full extent. This is where the ruler is measured is when we look to the cross. That God loved you and me so much that He was willing to come to earth and then have nails driven into His wrists and His feet and hung naked before men to be mocked and then to suffocate because He knew that's what you deserved and He loved you so much that He could not bear for you to to bear the full weight of what your sin demands. Folks, that is love that goes far beyond your circumstances whether it's cancer, whether it's a broken marriage, it speaks to our greatest need. Why should we look to the interest of others? Why should we be willing to humble ourselves? It's because we see Jesus doing this. And as you've put your your faith in Him, He has given you His mind. And that's what He does. That's what He does for His people in our last point how do we get it how 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 are we really able to practically live this out because here's the, the this is a church that's been together you you have functioned as a family some of you have been a part of this church since the beginning and 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 it's family is is pretty compu- uh, compu- peculiar i'll get that right word right We we have an an amazing capacity to love one another, but we also have this amazing capacity to hurt one another. That's why police officers hate going to domestic disputes. They would rather go into a crack house than a husband and a wife arguing with each other. And our capacity to hurt one another here in this body is immense because we love each one another and we've experienced it. And it happens. It happens regularly. But Paul is commending us to put others first to have unity, to be willing to walk in suffering. And so, how do we do this? Well, we really can't. It's not something we messed it up. There's not three steps to right thinking of going forward, but it really comes through just trusting and and resting in what Jesus Christ has already done. And what has Jesus done? When He came and He walked, He obediently lived out the law. He was, when, when tempted, when given trials, He trusted in the Father. And because of this, what we are found, the, the turning point of this point, is because Jesus lived this perfect life and that He was faithful in His suffering, God exalted Him. God enthroned Him. That's what we celebrate this morning. Because He did it perfectly on our behalf, God has exalted Him. He has lifted it up. And that there is no other name on earth or under earth that's like the name of Jesus. And all of us, whether we believe in Him or not, will confess that Jesus is Lord. He has been enthroned. And part of that with that and I talked about our sanctification that means to be made right and what happens and we we use these terms of imputation but what ends up happening there's this transfer that happened when we put our trust in the person of Jesus Christ God imputed to Jesus our record of our what our sin did that's what happened on the cross he poured out his punishment his judgment to Jesus and God, and Jesus nature never changed he did not, his nature did not become one of a sinner, but God treated him as if he was a sinner. And likewise for us, our nature is that of a sinful man. That is my predisposition. That's where I will always go to. But God, when I turn to Jesus, when I look to him as my rescuer and Lord, at that point, God transfers to us. He imputes to us, he imputes to me, Jesus, perfect record his righteousness his exalted status where god has lifted him up we get lifted up with him and 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 it's not that my nature has changed my nature is still in place but god now promises to treat me as if i was jesus john the gospel of john also tells us that god promises to love us just like he loves his son No matter where you are today, the expression of God's face when He looks at your life right now is one of utter delight. Because what He sees is the perfection of Jesus. And we don't get that because we don't really believe it. There's nothing like that in this world that reflects grace like that. There's nothing that we can do that is the good news. How do we, how do we really respond to a gift, a, a grace like this? There's, there, there's no moderate way. When when people interacted with God through the person of Jesus Christ, there was no moderate way. First off, a lot of times we had people that um, they hated Him. There were actually people that made vows to themselves that they would not eat until they saw Jesus dead there were other people when they were confronted with with jesus and his teaching and the way that he loved people with utter fear they fled he went into communities and performed miracles and the leaders of the community would come out and say leave we don't want anything to do with you because the reality is we hear these teachings and you hear the truths that i proclaimed this morning And it's just too hard because you know if this is to be true, there's things in our lives that have to change. It's going to change the way that I relate to God and it's going to change the way I relate to other people. And a lot of people just feared this type of change. And then there's the third people that were utterly smitten with Jesus. They couldn't get enough of Him. And as His ministry grew, He was constantly mobbed. People went days without food just to be around Him. That is God. That is the God that we've come to worship this morning. Someone that we, when we are honest with ourselves and take a a, a new look at who God is, we see it revealed so clearly. When we trust in God and we use His ruler to measure His faithfulness and goodness, there becomes this explosion of gratitude that happens in our life. And it's only at that point that we're able to humble ourselves and to put others' needs before ourselves. And that's what Paul's challenge to the Philippian church. Through this whole, he lays out this kind of theological discourse. But that's what he says. And that's what... That's the message this morning for this church. You're a church that faces great opposition from this world. Maybe a little different than the Roman Empire, but you face, and, and in that, it creates internal friction here. But in light of the good news of the gospel. Take the mind of Christ. Humble yourself. If you are someone this morning who have never put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, I don't think it's by any chance that you are here. I want you to know that God loves you and He purposed for you to be here. He knows exactly what you're going through. And by the very fact of the message, the word that I think that He has inspired me to preach this morning, He wants you to know that He is with you and He loves you. And you know, there may be a lot of intellectual barriers that, as it relates to scriptures and other faith, it goes far beyond that. Know that there is a living God who loves you and wants you to experience His delight. I encourage you to put your trust in Him this morning. Put your trust in Him this morning. And if you have put your trust in Him this morning, I want you to be reminded again, we get to rehearse the good news of the Gospel, the story of redemption. That's where we come every Sunday. And in a church this size, there's lots of dynamics And what I also know is that there's lots of rubs. And there's people in here who have disappointed you, who have hurt you. And I want to encourage you in light of the Gospel to go to those your brothers and sisters in Christ. Take the initiative. Ask for forgiveness. Give up your rights. This is not easy to do. But this is the mind of Christ. The Christ that was willing to give up His rights for a people that rejected Him that did not keep their covenant, but He was willing to become pieces, broken pieces on an altar for you. For the unity of His church and His reputation, let it be so. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word pierces and goes to the core it doesn't just through preaching and and lord i know my my preaching lacks in so many ways but yet your holy spirit lord uh through your word is so powerful you use the the weak things the foolish things of the world and heavenly father you came to set the captives free those who were your covenant people and those who are out. And Lord Jesus, that's what I pray this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would increase our trust in those, and those, and, and if there are those here that have never put their trust, they've never landed in you as being savior of their life, I pray right now, Lord, you would give them the faith to trust in you, that they would find a, a peace far beyond their circumstances, that they'd no longer be a slave to those circumstances, but yet would find freedom. And Lord, I pray for the rest of this church, Lord, that You would continue to build Your Spirit of unity and that it would be so infectious and beautiful to an outside world that they they would have to come and have to know the truth of the Gospel. Let this be so. We give thanks for Jesus. Amen.